The word academia is thrown around a whole bunch. Yet, if we were to stop and try to define it, many of us would have a hard time coming up with a clear definition. It really encompasses a whole lot and is pretty broad. And for certain people, it's actually quite specific. In today's episode, we are joined with someone from that world, the world of academia. We're going to attempt to define it, and then we're really going to get into the biggest question of the day. Is it worth it? If I'm interested, what kind of obstacles and mountains do I have to overcome in order to even just make it into the world? And then how could I put myself in a position to succeed and sustain that success? whatever success looks like. So ultimately, will it be worth it for me? What will I get out of it? We are so glad you're here to join us in this discussion. This is Mental Filter. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Mental Filter, where we have the chance to talk about pretty much anything and everything under the sun with some interesting people all through the lens of mental health. My name is Shmuel Fischler. I am a clinical social worker. I own and run a specialized practice just a bit north of Baltimore called CBT Baltimore. I am very excited to co-host this episode with a friend of mine, a colleague, who I'm going to allow to introduce himself, Dr. Jedediah Sieve, or he might prefer to go by Jed. So before we get into the topic, Jed, can you tell everybody who you are? I am Jed Sieve. You got that right. I am a clinical psychologist, and um, I'm on faculty at Swarthmore College, which is right outside of the city of Philadelphia. And I also have a small private practice where um, I work with folks mostly who have OCD, anxiety, and related disorders. And if I remember correctly, you work a lot with the athletics there. You advise them? Oh, yeah. I'm the the academic advisor or liaison to the men's basketball team. That's been a lot of fun for a lot of reasons, but we were actually the uh, number one ranked team in Division Three from preseason all the way to when the season was cut off at the Sweet 16 because of the pandemic. Wow. And that's impressive because they also have a very high academic level, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, it makes uh, recruitment and everything else totally different from a lot of the places because the kids have to be able to get in and perform. Yeah, a lot of fun. So, okay, so today's topic has to do with academia. Someone listening right now might think that, well, first of all, what is that, which we'll get into, and they might be thinking that, how is this relevant to me? I think if you give it a chance, you'll realize that the world of academia and people who go on that path and that journey of academia. And I know that I've worked with plenty of people who've been in that world. The unique challenges to that are actually not necessarily all that unique. And lots of people can relate to some of the challenges that are specific to academia. So let's just start off with pretty simple. When you hear the word academia and I hear the word academia might be different than what someone else assumes is academia. How would you describe, in general, what academia means when someone is involved in that? I don't actually really uh, know. I think it's there are a lot of different a lot of different places that I would think of as and, and roles that I would think of as being part of that. So I guess academia has to do with uh, you know the enterprise of doing research and, and scholarship and teaching education and really probably everybody who's 
gets to a certain point in education, going to social work and psychology and all sorts of things has been, at least as a student, involved in that in some way. But there's also a lot of variability within academia in terms of the types of roles that people have. As a clinical psychologist, I know that a little better, but certainly between kind of departments and fields, domains, but even within clinical psych, there's all different sorts of environments that are part of academia and all different sorts of roles from more clinical roles, more researchy roles, more teaching kinds of roles that are all under that umbrella. Right. Fair enough. So for the layperson, I guess an easy way to break it up is there are people who do some form of teaching. So they might be a professor on some level. They do research. So very broad, large scale research, specific research. And then people who are in academia who are more clinical based. Is that fair enough? And even there, you can break each of those down and there's a lot of variability and different kinds of psychology departments and different kinds of universities and colleges and stuff like that where, where people's role in doing any of those things that you just talked about might vary. I mean, that could be really nice because it, it'll, it means that people who like being involved in, in this sort of thing more generally can look for and hopefully find, it's competitive, but hopefully you can find sort of a niche that really allows you to do the stuff you like the most and not the parts that don't draw you as much to it. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the competitiveness because that is something that I want to bring up a little bit later about how to manage that competitiveness because I've certainly heard from people about the level of competitiveness and how it's, it can be really difficult. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Now, can you describe a little bit to people out there, and I know that this is unique to those different roles that a person can have in academia, but what are some of the major stages or pathways that someone has to go through in order to be part of this world of academia. So if someone wants to end up being a researcher or a professor or faculty in some university, what kind of things do they have to go through, whether it's educationally, professionally, past certain boards and things like that, that they have to overcome or achieve to get there? I'm not sure how well I can answer that without tailoring it to a specific area. So let, let me talk a little bit more about, I guess, psychology and maybe even clinical psych. And some of it will generalize well and some less well. So, so certainly you have to have your own background, your own education. And in my field, um, as a PhD clinical psychologist, that means that, you know, I had I have an undergraduate degree and then I went to graduate school uh, and I got a PhD in, in clinical psychology. And at the end of that PhD, for the last year, I did a, a full-time clinical internship. And that works sort of like the residency match system. And then... I did a couple of years of postdoc. There are several reasons one might do a postdoc. It's, it's certainly the norm in a lot of research areas and in clinical psych. You also, in America at least, maybe there are some differences state to state, but you need to have postdoctoral supervised hours to be able to be licensed, although not everybody in academia is licensed either. Um, but that's a, a common process for, for people in a position like mine. And then you hit the job market. And as you said before, you know, like it's, it's, it's very competitive and, and it's really a supply-demand issue to a large extent where uh, there are fewer positions than there are people who want them in many fields, certainly in my field. Uh, that's not the case in, in every field. And any given department might be only recruiting, you know, not every year. And, and even when they're recruiting to hire, they might have a specific need in mind and you might be outstanding, but you might not fill that need real well. 
So maybe they already have somebody in the department who does something similar to what you do or specializes in what you specialize. And, and maybe what they're really looking for is somebody who specializes in schizophrenia or even some specific thing about schizophrenia and, and that sort of thing. So, so there's a process of sort of applying to those positions and hopefully it works out and hopefully you can find one in a place where you can live and, and where your significant other would be happy to live and they can find something there too and, and that sort of thing. Even within my field, there are people who are sort of in the academic world, but in a more clinical role. So maybe uh, there are people, I went to internship and stayed on for postdoc at Massachusetts General Hospital. And so that's an academic medical setting. And there are people who just stay there for their careers and, and they're involved in research, but some of them aren't even writing the grants or, or conducting the research themselves per se in terms of the scholarship side. Some of them are you know, staff psychologists who are providing treatment in the context of randomized controlled trials. So they're involved in the research process and certainly in academia, but they're really hour to hour doing more clinical work. And it looks sort of like somebody who is in a, either a practice or certainly, uh, or you know, just any other department in the hospital. So a lot of variability there too, but hopefully that at least is a starting point for us. Yeah, thank you. That is. And so I, I think the part that a lot of people can relate to is, is two things that stick out to me, what you just said. Number one is, is that there are so many hoops to get to the end of the rainbow, so to speak. There's so many stages that you have to get to, and we can probably talk about each of those stages and what's uniquely challenging about those stages. But I think people can relate to, to get to a final goal. There's so many short-term goals or stages to get through. And even when you get through them, you're still at the whim of the timing, the funding at the time, the need at the time, who's open, who's available, where it is. There's so many variables that are completely out of our control. And all of us have been talking a lot more about things that are not in control being in COVID right now. So this is certainly a reflection of you can be good, you could be talented, you could be smart, you could be capable, you could be committed, and yet still not have the opportunity that you were hoping for. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, it's, it's sometimes hard to explain to people, even well-educated people who are not involved in it. It's hard for them to understand, like, like, why would you move to wherever it is that you're moving? Or can't you just call up the department you've been so successful? Can't you call up the local places? And so people don't necessarily understand all that. But it, those things are worse in academia than in a lot of fields that people end up going into. But they're not unique to academia either. So if you were uh, really passionate about being a musician or an athlete or something like that, you might put years and years of really, really hard work and uh, competitions and hours of giving up other things for it. You might really uh, invest years of toil and effort to try to set yourself up to do what you love. And of course, there are a lot of people who just don't make it because of bad breaks. It's not obvious to me at all that, for example, famous musicians are clearly more talented than people you've never heard of who you run into at some dive bar or you happen to be friends with. Not necessarily the case at all, I don't think. And you know, similarly, if you were a classical musician, if you were if you were an outstanding cellist, uh, who's to say that whatever orchestra or or has a, a need for that right now, or or whatever city has some role for you? Like, so I, so I do think that when people are chasing things that are important to them, that can sometimes be the case. That said, as a clinical psychologist, I've always felt a little bit lucky because I have built in several roles to my job, and I could always fall back on one if the other didn't work out. So, so I would like to stay in the role that I'm in, or on that path at least, for a career, 
But if that didn't work out for whatever reason, um, you know, I could just do full-time clinical work. And so that's a little easier than if I were, you know, a specialist in Victorian, part of Victorian literature or something like that, where you might be just finding something totally new to do if you couldn't stay in some sort of academia, broadly defined kind of role. Right. So in a way you diversified by ha- being yeah. able to have different roles. That's right. Oh, and, and, and I got a little lucky if I can just tack on one more thing, Shmuel, about that. Uh, I got a little lucky in that way because um, I, I didn't intend to go into academia. I actually sort of uh, stretched the truth a little bit to get into the grad school I went to where they wanted to train researchers because I wanted their clinical training and I just expected I would practice. Uh, and I ended up loving some things about academia. And so uh, I was playing with house money from the start, I guess, because it wasn't even r- what my initial goal was going to grad school. It's funny you say that because I was going to ask you, can you think of something that was fortuitous for you because a lot of things have to go your way in order to actually come out on the other side and, and get to even close to a destination that you hope for. So I'm glad you brought that up. Are you able to share a little more about that story of how you snuck into something? Yeah, well, it's funny because my, you know, my students are often asking about this process and they do it often by asking what I did. And I, I always am I'm trying to emphasize them, don't try to do it my way. I got super lucky and a lot of weird breaks that I never really deserved, or at least that are unlikely to work nowadays. So first of all, one thing is this was back, I started grad school in 2003. So that makes me feel old to say, but it's true. And things are really, at least in my field, increasingly competitive over time. So I remember my own grad school mentor saying, oh, I can never get into grad school now. And I just thought she was being ridiculous, of course. And, but I feel the same way. And so what I did actually was I knew that I really liked psych and I knew that the clinical psych would be something I might like, but it wasn't something I was running to do right after undergrad. And during undergrad, I had taken off a couple of years before I started and I took off one year in the middle. And so I was overloading myself on classes. And I actually, I was a little older also by the time I finished, I was actually married. I had a kid before we, I finished undergrad and I was living in a different city and commuting and and so um, I was just trying to, to do it and do it well. And so I didn't, for example, take opportunities like with research experience. I had very minimal research experience. I had one summer where uh, I helped somebody out, but not much else. Uh, and certainly not the stuff that a lot of my peers had done. It's increasingly more and more common, at least in my field, for people to do full-time RA work, maybe for even two years, a year or two after undergrad, before going to grad school, or at least having gotten a lot of those experiences as an undergrad. I didn't have any of that. And I took off two years after undergrad to do something completely unrelated, decided fairly last minute in that second year that I was going to apply that in that cycle, scrambled to get myself together, to learn about the process, to study for GREs, all that kind of stuff. And there were a lot of places that, that you know, just said no to me, quite understandably, I think, if you consider all that. And, and they're, they're accepting some of these programs, except so few people every year. You can be absolutely outstanding. And that's still even even if it puts you in the top 10, 20% of the applicants, that's still way more applicants than a lot of programs are, are going to accept. So you still need a lot of luck and weird breaks and stuff like that. And, and somehow I got a couple of offers that were really good and was able to choose. And I keep meaning actually to ask my grad school advisor why she took a, why she took a gamble on me. I, I, don't, I don't fully understand it since I wasn't really set up the way some people were. So um, that's partially telling you a little bit about how I, I landed there, but uh, also saying that's not how most people did. And then returning to the, the point I had made right before, I, I really just intended to do clinical practice. And there were a lot of things I really liked about Penn. I went to Penn for grad school. And so, and I knew that they wouldn't be interested in me if I told them that. And so I stretched the truth with it at first. 
But then what happened was in that environment, you know, there's so many intellectually stimulating, engaging things going on, you know, smart, interesting, engaged people doing cool work and, and people coming, giving talks and all that. And I just really liked that environment. And it took me a couple of positions before I was able to figure out exactly which things about it I liked the most. And, and so where I am right now allows me to do most of the things I like the most about it without having to do as much of many of the things that I don't like the most or don't value the most about it. And I'd been in a couple of other institutions before that that were different. And I kind of learned that. So I think everybody still is, you know, through grad school and even afterward is still, even in my case, through my first five years as a faculty person somewhere else, is still sort of figuring out a little bit. Maybe some people know from the start, but still figuring out what they really love about it and what their real strengths are. One thing that was on my mind about that is is that exactly is it's different for obviously for each person and it's different depending on the role, whether you're teaching or research or clinical, but what might be some of the things that attracts people to the world of being a professor or sitting in a lab and doing research or going over papers and numbers and statistics and all that. You mentioned how it's intellectually stimulating for you. What else drives someone to it? Yeah, well, so you mentioned a bunch of things, and I don't think that everybody loves all of those things. Um, I have friends that have different preferences from me. So some people really love teaching. Some people find teaching a hassle that is a necessary evil for them to have a life in, in research, let's say, and they try to get grants to buy out of their teaching. Some people really like you know, stats and methodology and, and that part of the research, and some people really love the, the science of it whatever that means for them, whether it's the stats or whether it's, you know, more, I don't know, basic science of some sort. And some people don't really love that part. So, so uh, the parts that stand out for me, I, lo- I, I really like teaching. I like clinical supervision as well, although in, in my current role, I don't do a lot of that. So I like a lot of sort of the interpersonal parts. I like the ideas parts of research. I like uh, debating it and, and arguing it and, you know, sort of throws me back to maybe my yeshiva days, right? Sitting there and, and, and uh, hashing out cases and, and exceptions and figuring out what the boundaries would be and how you'd go about testing it. There are parts of the research process I don't love that much. It's, it's kind of weird to say as somebody in a, you know, I guess a publisher parish kind of environment, I don't, I don't love the process of writing very much. Actually, my wife loves to write. Um, I don't really like that. That's to me a part of the process you need to do because your research is useless if it's never written up for anybody. And also because part of the roles and responsibilities and that kind of thing, but I don't really enjoy it. I have friends who would love to have a, you know, a laptop, a diet Coke and nobody bothering them for a while and, and aren't really interested in sitting down with students and teaching. And so there's, there, there's so many different kinds of things that can draw you to it. And that's all within clinical psych. Forget about other fields where they have totally different expectations and roles. Which speaks to, again, something that's really relatable is that no matter what we do, there's always going to be parts of that that we probably hate, maybe dislike, but probably really despise. And whether it's a tedious part of it, even if it's something that we're passionate about, you know, you can, you can love sports and you can love music. I guarantee you that there's parts of that that they don't like. So like you said, someone might have to teach in order to be able to do the research. And we'll get to that soon about grant writing and all that stuff. You might have to teach a certain amount of classes if you want to be able to do research and vice versa. And there's certain things you might have to write. You might have to do all these things, which are parts that if you had the choice, you wouldn't include. 
which is, again, I think relatable to everybody. Now back to the whole process and the journey where you could be good, you could be smart, you could be studious and still not get to where you hope to be. And that ties into the whole idea of, well, it doesn't seem fair, which every single human being, I think, has to grapple with that at some point of, is this fair? I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do, quote unquote. And I find this uh, working with people and personally as well of when you bump into certain things, well, I'm doing everything right. I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to and somehow figure out a way to deal with, well, it might not be fair or who said it should be fair. So I'm curious to just hear about that. And then I don't know if you're familiar at all within the world of academia, this loose term, do you know what the attrition rate is? Like people going through it because there's all these steps that they have to go through and have to pass these boards and these exams and PhD and thesis and, and I mean, dissertation, I'm sorry, you know, then go through the job market and then have to produce this. Like, do you, are you familiar with what the attrition rate is for people? Yeah, no, I don't, not, not, I don't have any concrete numbers for that, but you know, you watch it. People make other decisions uh, along the way. Uh, you also sometimes see people complaining about or, or trying to figure out maybe whether they're just, you know, carrying through because of inertia or because they don't want to let down their mentor or, or these external reasons and versus it's really what's right for them. Uh, I see that more and more now that so many people in academia are on Twitter. You see this sort of stuff come up and you see people announcing that I've decided to shift into to a different sort of role or setting and you know, that whenever somebody does that, that I've seen, a lot of people end up sort of jumping on and saying, you know, like, good for you. And, you know, there's so many of us who wished maybe that we had made a choice like that. Again, I don't know that that's unique to, to this. And, and it's certainly I want to acknowledge like you're, it's, it's a position of privilege to be able to expect, assume, and, and maybe even have it work out that you get to have a career and support yourself and your family doing something that you have a passion for. There's no way that the, the, I don't know numbers for this either. There's no way that it's not the case though, that the vast majority of people work to make money to support what they need, maybe what they want also, and, and don't get the chance to, to do a passion, you know, to be passionate about it. You know, maybe there's some of those musicians and athletes, maybe there's some other people who love it, but, but how many people just working jobs because they need to work would tell you that they're that their career or that their job is their fulfillment. Does anybody say that in, I don't know, more uh, blue collar kind of roles, even white collar kind of roles? I don't know. Fair enough. So there are people who might be listening would be, and maybe rightfully so, sort of like rolling their eyes. Like, seriously, you're going to complain on how hard it is? I mean, you're lucky. You get to be involved in something that you're interested in, that you're passionate about. Fair enough. You know, fair enough. For most people in most jobs, I think there are parts of the jobs that are annoying. Uh, I don't think that that means that you don't try to find yourself roles where you get to capitalize on, on what you're good at and what you like to do and minimize the other things. So for me, that, that landing where I landed, it, you know, I had a lot of breaks to get there, but it really, like, I feel regularly very lucky, even when I do annoying things that my friends and colleagues in other roles have lots of things they have to do that I would hate doing and, and, and I don't have to. But they would look at me and say, well, you know, but you could never buy out of teaching in your role and I don't want to teach. Oh, that's fine. Great. Sounds like we both found where we want to be. Kumbaya. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, if you're, if you're comfortable sharing all the steps along the way, which did you find the most uh, challenging? 
Um, a lot of moving, I think, was hard on my family. I don't know that it that it hit me quite as hard. Maybe I was still focused just on like trying to get the next position and that sort of thing. But, you know, I moved for graduate school. I was living in New York before, and then I moved to Philly. I was married and I had a kid. And then I moved to Boston for three years, and then I moved to Miami for five years, and then back to Philly for the past four. And, and that took a toll on a lot of people. It was hard for my wife. Certainly all of those moves were. Some of my kids, struggled with different parts depending it really had a lot to do with what age they were at what move so i think the move from boston to miami was hard for my oldest got it for example i'm curious your take on some of the things that have come up that people have shared with me who are somewhat involved in that world and again for people listening these are things that i think can apply in a similar way even if you're not in academia so one thing that has come up before is part of the process of once they hit the job market, or maybe this is even true for for matching uh, for externships and things like that. I remember someone telling me how they would send out literally almost hundreds of applications. And then not only dealing with rejection, but it's almost like this ambiguous rejection because they just don't hear anything. Like people who apply to colleges or they apply to jobs, not all of them, but for the most part, they get some reply even if it's a made up reply of just now is not a good time or whatever it is, they get some rejection reply. And for, for a lot of people, it's almost easier to take an actual rejection than an unspoken rejection. So help educate me. Is that a common thing? And like, what's that like to just like throw it out into the stratosphere and then not hear anything? Yeah. Well, I think you're, you're quite right. (laughs) Um, So first of all, academia is full of rejections in general. So, you, you know, it's a, there's a lot of things about the process that are just regular and don't mean anything bad. So, so most papers that you write are going to be rejected before they're accepted, sometimes fully rejected by a journal. But even if they're going to ultimately publish it, often they will, you know, give you some sort of revise and resubmit rejection where we're not going to take it like this. But if you can address all the reviewers' comments. So, so uh, rejection is a regular part of this. But you're pointing out that in terms of landing places, there's not even like a timeline by which you hear and you often don't even hear. And that's true. That's really stressful. The job market, I have friends who are on the job market. I know, you know, more junior colleagues who who are maybe in visiting positions right now and trying to find tenure track positions. And, and of course now with the pandemic, everybody is freezing up hiring. And, and I've even heard of cases where somebody was hired was given a job offer, declined their other offers for it. And then the university, rescinded the offer with with COVID. Um, I can't imagine the stress of those sorts of things, just brutal, especially for somebody with a family and you don't know and having to restart the process. I spoke recently to a couple of, of friends who are struggling with those kinds of things. I was very lucky. I was a little bit shielded from it because when I was at Mass General, I left after three years there, one year of internship and two years of postdoc, but I didn't have to leave. I could have stayed. There were some reasons why I wanted to leave that weren't because I was unhappy in the job per se. And so I was there too, playing a little bit with house money. There was, I think a year or two before the year I really hit the job market, I floated out a couple of applications to places that were in locations that I thought would be good and okay for my family and good positions. And there was just sort of like, in case one of these works out and they didn't, 
And then that last year, I sent out more applications, but even there, it was, we were limited geographically uh, by some family considerations. And I knew I could stay at Mass General and I wouldn't be unhappy per se, even if there were some reasons that I was uh, looking to go to slightly different positions. So I didn't experience how hard that was for some people, what you're describing, all these applications and not even knowing when you're going to hear and sometimes never even hearing at all. And so hard. Yeah. And for you know, people out there, even again, even if they're, this is not what they're doing, I think, at least I know I can relate, that sitting in that twilight zone of just not knowing, and the irony is, is that we're all sitting in a twilight zone right now of like what's coming next with no clear direction. You know, you hear one thing one day, one thing another day, yes, no, up, down. We don't really know what's going on. Sitting in that, that space of ambiguity and just like this open-endedness is, is, is really hard. And I think we all can, we're all, we're all really dealing with this. So another thing that has come up from people is, and you started to talk about it because you mentioned grants and you mentioned tenure and maybe not everyone out there knows exactly what tenure means. So maybe just define that, but specifically also to grants is that at least to my understanding, the people that I work with is that you constantly have to produce so if part of your position, some positions, and you'll explain more, are dependent on grants. So and some grant and talk about competition, there's there's lots of competition for grants. So it, it, it almost feels as if there's this constant requirement to produce and it doesn't end. It's like waves on the beach. So you get one grant and then, oh, when that's completed, then another, you got to do another one. You got to do another one. You got to, there's never a time to, I wouldn't say relax, but there's, never a time to really ease up once you hit a certain level. And then when you get these revisions, like you said, it's almost like it's, it's building up that people need to be perfect. And it's like, then there's, it feels like almost like nothing's good enough. Again, I got to revise again. And sometimes those revisions don't really make any logical sense. Oh, I can just go on and on and on. And and I, I want, I have more questions about grants, but like just some of those things, can you, can you touch on? Yeah, so you're hitting on a few different things there. So if I forget to, to address one of them, just remind me again. In terms of what tenure is, I actually amazingly don't, don't know an exact definition, but essentially tenure is uh, when you get tenure, you're sort of being hired long-term uh, with job security. Very difficult for a place to get rid of somebody who has tenure. They really have to violate some fairly severe things for that to happen. And so, first of all, let me acknowledge that there's some academic academia environments that don't have tenure. There are some regular uh, universities that don't have ten, don't have a process of tenure, and there are certain kinds of departments that people in, who are doing this sort of work are in uh, certain med school departments where people don't typically get tenure. So anyway, so that's not everywhere. But even places where there's a tenure track position, usually you're you're on the tenure track, so to speak, for about six years. And then you either get tenure or you deny tenure. And it's almost like a prolonged and fairly stressful audition for the permanent job. And you're right. There is a lot of producing that's required. What you have to produce will depend on the place and, and what they value there, as well as the kind of domain. So, for example, you know, it, it's, it would be common in certain humanities departments in, in a competitive kind of university that to get tenure, you need to have written a book, maybe more than that. In clinical psych, um, in, in a lot of research universities, when you're pre-tenure, they discard you from writing a book because that's not valued as much as doing empirical research uh, or as much as writing grants. 
So I was going to collaborate on a book once actually with a friend of mine when, when she was pre-tenure at a, a research university. You know, it was a real expertise of hers and, and we were excited to do it. And then her tenure committee advised her, said, don't do it. doesn't matter how much else you produce. People are going to say, well, but you always could have written another grant instead. So what you need to produce, whether it's, uh, you know, grants, books, research articles, clinical papers, uh, is going to depend a lot. But there's that period pre-tenure where you're working really hard to demonstrate that you are worth keeping permanently with protections, protections for you when you get tenure. It allows for academic freedom. It allows you to say stuff within reason that, that might be controversial and that kind of stuff. In terms of grants... Yeah. So, so that's one of the things I didn't want to have to do. I don't really like writing grants very much. And I didn't, I don't like, I'm a little bit risk averse in certain ways. I didn't like the idea of what we call soft money. So having to get grants to pay parts of your salary and to have your, to be able to do your research. So that was one reason why I didn't think I wanted to be at a place like Mass General long term. I would have stayed there. I could have shifted into a slightly more clinical role, but I really didn't want to be chasing grants for a career. And that's one reason, one thing I really like about Swarthmore, it's, it's an elite college with kids who are just every bit as talented as the kids in the Ivies. And, and so I get to work with outstanding people, but the weight is shifted more in the direction of teaching and doing research that involves the students uh, than it is about pursuing grant funding. So I don't need to have a big NIH grant to be able to get tenure at Swarthmore. I didn't want to have to chase that. However, what I do want to say is that I want to give like voice to the other way of looking at it. Nobody, I guess, loves having to write grants. That I've never heard. But I've heard of people who see it as like, they're kind of like a small business owner. And when you're a small business owner, you know, you need to make sure that you have enough revenue to be able to pay your employees and your overhead costs and to keep the business running, even if there's a down, you know, during a pandemic, for example. And, uh, you know, there's pressure in, in some ways that way uh, to, to fund whatever it is that you're doing and to be able to pay everybody. But there are people who really excel at that. And there are people who like being business owners. I know some people, I had a mentor actually, who also sort of looked at her role that way. You know, she was in a researcher and the head of a very impressive and productive group of outstanding researchers and you know, big name kind of place. And, and she liked it. She liked running it that way. She was really good at it. Um, she was good at getting grants. And, uh, you know, there were some cushions in place as well. But, but the process of needing to get funding and make sure that it's all, you know, viable, and you can pay for your space and, and your people and your participants. And that was great for her. So I think there are a lot of individual differences that way. I want to say also, when you're thinking about academia, and, and, you know, so people complain sometimes about quality of life or work-life balance and, and other people don't. I think you have to understand that everybody's quality of life is affected differently by different sorts of things. So, for example, for that person I was just talking about, she likes being kind of like a small business owner. And one thing she liked about it, especially when she had younger kids, was when you're sort of the boss of a business, you have the flexibility. You know, if your kid's sick or whatever, like you do what you need to do. And so flexibility in some ways, not punching a clock nine to five. You can be in, in academia in the VA, for example, but there you're in a government job, so it's very different. So the, the kind of flexibility I'm talking about it can be really nice for somebody and enhance their quality of life. On the other hand, the fact that you can always at any time not be on means that you can always at any time not be off. 
So for some people, the, the sense that, you know, your research is always ongoing, there's no nine to five-ness about it, and there's no clear like delineation between personal life and work. For some people, that's a flexibility thing that's a huge boon that really helps them. And for some people, that just means that it could be Sunday night at 10.30 p.m. and I really just want to watch the rest of the stupid, you know, Michael Jordan documentary. Hey, and hey, hey, I'm going to take umbrage to that. Do not you don't like the stupid word? <laughs> I've been watching. It's good. It takes me back to my misery as a Knicks fan and as a teenager. And the glory days of growing up with the Bulls. Brutal. But, but, you know, for some people, it's like, well, you know, I, but I need to go work at 1030 uh, on Sunday night. And the other thing, I saw somebody quip about this on social media. I forgot exactly how they said it, but they sort of said, the good thing about my job is that I'm, I'm, I'm my own boss. But the bad thing about my job is that my boss is an asshole. <laughs> yeah, very nice. And, and I've seen stuff on social media, like you said earlier, about frustrations that people have and how they're struggling. And so on one hand, both in the tenure topic and, and in the grand topic, on one hand, there's, we're dependent, someone is dependent on what others expect or what others think. So if you're in a tenure track or if you're doing grants, you have to meet what they expect from you, whether you feel that's where you should put your energies or not, or where the focus should be. On the other hand, you're speaking to, and this is for all of us, is how much perspective plays a role. So I can look at it at more than one way. It's uh, about being a little bit flexible as far as what do, what do I'm taking out of this and looking at a position while well, there are certain parts that actually work to my strengths and our major benefits and there are certain parts that are not. And so there's a real power in what you're focusing on. And if we're hyper-focused on certain parts of it, then we're going to really get stuck in that. And this is for any job. This is for any situation that we're in the power of being able to look at certain parts and not pretending that the hard parts are not hard or undesirable, but really choosing where I'm going to focus. Now to piggyback off of grants, it's a good thing you're not really in a grant position because I don't know if you were to speak so transparently. I wonder if it would get you in hot water. I have heard whether it's from people directly or on social media or sharing and uh, conferences or things like that about how, what drives research. You can apply that to tenure too, sort of like, why is writing that book important or the grants more important? Like, even if someone is intellectually honest and doing it for the right reasons, at the end of the day, what is driving it all? Is there this bottom line of, well, is it money that's driving everything? So if there's money for this, then we're going to research that, even though it's not really so practical or, or deep down, we don't think it's going to pan out into something that's going to be meaningful or useful. Same thing with tenure. So in this whole, I know it's, it's different for different places. And so like the university that you're at, you're fortunate that you don't have to do, the, do grants as a, as a part of your job. And why is that? So what really drives that whole train, what's pushing it? And in specific uh, research and grants, you know, you can spend millions and millions of dollars researching something. You might not have the autonomy to research what you want. And you might even think that what you're researching is ultimately not going to do anything. What's, what's the push behind some of these things and what's driving it? So there's a lot of variability here as well. And, but you're right. So when people need to get external funding, to do their work, then to some extent, the priorities of the funding agencies are going to dictate what sort of work they can do. 
And that, yeah, that was a consideration about some parts of the other process, the other, you know, the, the grant-driven self-money process that I didn't particularly like the sound of. Uh, and so, for example, in clinical psychology, NIMH in the past couple of decades has really pushed toward a, a very biological way of studying mental illness, for lack of a better term. And it really has not panned out very well. It has not been to the benefit of, of people who actually could use treatment. But if you want to get funded, what has had to happen is that people who really are just trying to do more behavioral, let's say, research have tacked on, either shifted direction entirely or more commonly tacked on components to their research that will satisfy the funding priorities of NIMH. But there are a lot of different kinds of funding agencies as well. So there's their NIMH, there's other governmental things for people who, who let's say, study substance-related stuff. There's DOD-related funding for people uh, who are doing, I don't know, trauma work and other neuropsych kind of, I don't know, TBI kind of stuff. And then there are foundations. So, you know, I had a, a grant from the International OCD Foundation. There are all kinds of private foundations that support research consistent with their missions. So it kind of depends. Yes, it's true that if you need to get money from somebody else, and a lot of it, millions of dollars maybe from somebody else to support your work and to pay salaries in your program, then you're going to have to give them a proposal that they think is worth putting that money to. And you may not always agree with that. I haven't had to have that experience too much because most of my work is fairly low cost because I, in my position now, I, have, I don't have access to the super expensive stuff. Like we don't have an fMRI machine, which I don't do that kind of work anyway, but just to illustrate. But low cost stuff, like funding for low cost stuff, they're very generous with. So I have a much easier time getting small amounts of money than I think people in a lot of places. My research in general is fairly cheap and depends which research projects, but I see at least part of my research goal, uh, especially in my setting now, as being part of my educational and teaching kind of role. So I, I try to be more flexible than I think a lot of people are in different sorts of university settings in terms of what research projects I take on, if it's going to be something that will be really great for students. So I try to, you know, they're only with a very small department. They're just a couple of us who are clinical folks. And so all the students who are interested in doing clinical research want to work with, with one of the couple of us. And so I usually have been trying not to force them to just do what I wanted to do anyway, but to see if we can find a project that is piquing their interest and I'm still sort of interested enough in and competent to, to mentor and that sort of thing. So that's looking at research a little differently from somebody who's doing large scale clinical trials in a med school setting. Right. And people out there who are employees or people who are business owners from both ends of that, there's going to be things where they might have to do in order to survive even if it doesn't necessarily fit their business or personal quote-unquote mission statement. I know this is true with nonprofits who they're really dependent on getting funding. And maybe if the funding, you know, these couple of years is really in this category, so we'll sort of almost like try to sneak it in by getting funding for this and using some of it for that. And a business owner or any business owner they might have to do certain things in order to keep the doors open. Or someone's an employee. There are certain parts of their job where they don't agree that it makes sense or they should, but they have to. And the business owner, and in this case, the business owner is maybe a university or some organization, they might not be 
so straightforward and say, hey, listen, we really don't agree that we, that we should do this type of uh, research. And really, we agree with you that, you know, our focus should be on this and this and this, but we're going to do it anyway. They're not necessarily so transparent about it. They're just saying, well, we got to do this and this and this. So I think it's a, it's a struggle for, you know, for all of us. So a couple more things here before we wrap up, and this is, uh, I think this is interesting. I don't know about everyone listening. <laughs> is What might be some things that the layperson sort of assumes about the world of academia that they just, they just assuming and, and they don't know? Like what's something that people wouldn't know? I think I've been caught so long in this world that I, I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever like bumped into someone and you was like, what? What are you saying? Like, that doesn't make any yeah, sense. Yeah, here's, here's, here's one thing that I see people don't understand, because I see my students don't necessarily understand it either, that in most of, of academia, and it's even to some extent, although a little bit lesser in the liberal arts colleges like where I am now, in most of academia, the thing that matters the most in terms of things like whether you get tenure or promotion, like your evaluations, is not about actually the teaching. People think of you as like you, you're a teacher college professor, what does that mean? It means you teach, which of course it does. And again, a place like Swarthmore is exceptional and other similar institutions in a literal sense to what I'm saying to some extent, but you're not being evaluated as being a good teacher. You can be an absolutely outstanding teacher, but if you're not, depending on what the requirements are for your role, if you're not bringing in enough grant money, if you're not publishing either high enough quality or volume or both, if you don't have a reputation in the field and those kinds of things, then you're not going to get tenure. You're not going to be retained. And, and this is, I've noticed this sometimes when I've been at different institutions where either somebody did not get tenure or, or had to leave in some way or wasn't being rehired, whatever it was, and the students are freaking out and they're writing letters or coming in to meet with whatever dean and saying, no, they were such a good teacher. What they're not understanding is that, and it's totally understandable, you're an undergrad, you're going to these places and, and you might... You might be paying, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year for your education, and so it's understandable you'd imagine that the the faculty who are being hired are being hired to for you. But they're not. I remember even when I was an undergrad, and I didn't really understand a lot about this. I remember having this chemistry professor who was just awful. He was obnoxious to all the students and not invested in his teaching and and all those kinds of things. I remember my mind kind of being blown when I saw that he was getting like all these awards and stuff, it turned out he was an incredibly high profile, productive expert, whatever, in his subfield within chemistry, which I didn't know or care about. He was just like a, a not particularly nice guy and, and not a really good teacher. Anyway, I guess that, that would probably be the thing that stands out the most that people just don't get. But of course, it's different place to place. Some places they really care very much about your teaching. Right. Not everything is going to be driven by what you value, pretty much. Right. Right. And, and if you're very lucky, you can find yourself in a setting where it mostly is. And I feel very lucky right now about that kind of thing. So which leads me to my last question. Well, I have plenty yeah. more questions, but the last question for now, based on all the things that we've talked about, some of the challenges are unique to academia, some are not, and all the stages and hoops that someone has to, to jump through. What are some of the things you, you say or to help advise students now who are starting their journey to be able to push through and stick with it and, and be resilient. You can look at this question from the students now, and you could look at it from the perspective of, you know, if you only knew X, Y, and Z, how might that have helped you through your own 
path. That's that's very broad, Shmuel. I'm good at being um, broad. How do you help students now when they're when you know they're looking up at Mount Everest here? I think that it's it's hard to it's hard to actually follow through on this. So I'm not sure if this is like a do what I say, not what I do kind of thing. But I think that people need to like take the pressure off about the Everest. It's like you don't you don't have to commit when you're graduating at age 21 to a process that's going to take the next decade. If you think that that's what you want to do or, or you want to at least do enough of it to find out if that's where you want to be, then commit to the next step and do the next step. And like, you know, you asked me about attrition rates before. I didn't know rates, but it, there's nothing shameful about attrition. There's nothing wrong with doing something and realizing that's not what you want to do and changing. My dad did that. My dad almost had a PhD at MIT and realized that what he was doing was not what he wanted to continue doing and he left. That's a hard thing, I think, for people to do, right? You, you know, there's all the sunk costs and what are people going to be thinking and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, if a student thinks they want to go through this process and the first thing to do is do some full-time RA work, then do the full-time RA work. And if you don't want to do the next step, don't. Um, so I think like, you know, yes, it's a huge mountain, but there are a lot of outs along the way. Most parts of the process don't have a huge cost other than opportunity costs. So, you know, clearly if you're making almost no money in grad school, maybe you could be doing iBanking or something in Manhattan instead. So that's a, that's a cost in a sense, but it's not a penalty from what you're doing per se. And so go for it without feeling like you've just signed in blood to do the whole thing. It reminds me of if someone has to lay down a monster hand in poker, you know, you're ready a couple of rounds of betting in and you have to lay down this like really good hand, but you know that it's not the good move to, to go forward and go all in on this when you just got pulled all in. And so, yeah, you know, you, you got to lay it down. And part of what contributes to people being even more anxious and more pressured is not only that whatever negative thing is going to happen, it's also that I'm not going to be able to handle it. So if I pull out now at this stage, not only is it the negative connotation of what people are going to think and all that stuff, it's what's next. I'm not going to be able to pull myself back up and go for something else and manage something else. And that part is not necessarily true or helpful. So that's great advice. Yeah. I can't, uh, I can't endorse the poker uh, example because I don't know how to play poker, but, but the rest of it sounded good. So <laughs> I'll second all of it, but the poker thing. <laughs> all right, Jed, thank you so much. Hi, my pleasure. Good to talk you, to you all. So yeah, thank you again, Jed. And if someone wants to find you, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, so um, I've, got, I've got several emails, all of which are available within a quick Google search. So you can find my, uh, my contact info through Swarthmore online. I also have my own webpage where there's like a you know, contact box or something like that. So anybody, feel free to reach out. Great. Thank you for doing this, Jed. Awesome. Okay, take care. Thanks, Jamal.